0: Praise the Lord. How many of you know that God will write you a scripture prescription? Hallelujah. Wherever you're at in life, whatever your need is, physical, emotional, mental, uh, material, sickness, need, God has a prescription in his word for you. When Jesus is Lord of your life, guess what? All of the promises of God are through him, yes, to you for you to take hold of those promises they belong to you so i pray that you do that this morning i'm going to take my text this morning from mark chapter 8 from verse 22 to verse 25 it's one of the most <clears throat> one of the most unusual stories of jesus healing he heals a blind man But he does something that he only does one time, recorded in all the Gospels. And it's the way that he heals them. And there's a message in this, and we're going to extract that message because the Lord is speaking through this to us today. So that's Mark chapter 8, verse 22. Then they came to the city of Bethsaida. They brought a blind man to Jesus, and they asked him to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and he brought him outside of the village. Then he spit in his eyes, placed his hands on his eyes and asked him, do you see anything? Regaining his sight, the blind man said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus placed his hands on the blind man's eyes again a second time. And he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everybody clearly. I call this the second touch. It is the only time when Jesus prayed for somebody twice. Two times. The first touch, the man regains his sight, but there's no clarity. People look like trees. There's no distinction. And so he lays hands on him a second time. Isn't that strange? How many of you would be tempted to think maybe, maybe his batteries were running low or something? When I was first saved and, and first read this, I thought, that is peculiar. Here Jesus has raised the dead. He's, he's opened the eyes of the blind. He's made the lame to walk. And he prays for this guy. And the guy um, sees, but not well, And so the second touch finishes the job and he has clarity. The story of the second touch is what I want to bring to you this morning because there is a word from God in this message of the second touch for you and I today. The second touch is not about God offering you and I partial results in our life. But it's about you and me having the resolve to push beyond partial results in our life and seek God's complete work. Don't settle for being half-healed. That's what the message is. And so because this is the only time Jesus did this and it happened like this, there's obviously a word for us. And as I said, that word is God does not want you to settle for half-healing. He doesn't want you to settle for being halfway where God wants you to be. He wants all of us to go all the way, kind of like what I was talking about before, being plunged into the deep water. So, for this reason, there is throughout the Bible a two-phase pattern of God working in the lives of people. It's found throughout the scriptures. I'm I'm going to just cite three examples of God's dual-phase, two-phase pattern of working. And uh, we see this two-phase pattern in first the example that I just shared with you, the two-phase patterns found in the healing of the blind man. We also see the two-phase pattern in the story of the wilderness that existed between the deliverance from slavery down in Egypt for the children of of, uh, Israel and entry into the Promised Land, possessing the Promised Land. But in between was this wilderness. And again, there was two stages, a two-phase work of deliverance. The third example I want to share with you this morning we see it in the life of Joseph, and I shared about Joseph last week. How that there is a distance between being called and being chosen. And You may, you may re- remember that the scripture talks about many are called, Jesus said, but few are chosen. Why is that? And so we're going to look at that this morning. Because it would seem at first glance that God calls many, but then he selectively, maybe even arbitrarily, chooses just a few. And so you might be probably one of those standing thinking, well, you know, God called me, but, but he obviously didn't choose me. But that is not the case. However, there is distance between being called and being chosen. Again, the two-phase operation of God. Let's start with the... Uh, I see men as trees walking. There are far too many Christians who are stalled out in phase one who see men as trees walking. They have have an abstract, hazy vision of heaven, but they have very little clarity in the here and now, here in this world, in this life. They see people not as God sees them. They see people as trees walking. How many times have there been in marriages, the occasion where the spouse says after several years of marriage, you don't see me. Maybe you've said that to one another, some of you who've been married. You get that feeling where they don't see you. They just see the outwards of it. They don't see what's going on on the inside. When Jesus heals the man, the first time he lays his hands on him, that's the way he sees people, as trees walking. He doesn't see any definition. He doesn't have any clarity. He doesn't understand what he's looking at. But that's not the will of God. And God doesn't want us to stay in that partial, dim view of the world where we've got a little hazy view of heaven, but we really don't see what's going on around us. God doesn't want you going throughout your day at work or going through Walmart or wherever you happen to go as you're shopping or running your errands. He doesn't want you being oblivious, walking among people like you're walking in a forest of trees. Jesus saw clearly. When he was with people, he looked right through them. He saw them. Because he had that full touch. Glory to God. He saw people as they were. And he was saying to us in this healing that I want to do a complete work. Don't settle for the first touch. Go for the second touch. Hallelujah. But there are too many of us who are satisfied, thinking, well, you know, I I barely know what I'm looking at when I look in the mirror in the morning. I have a hard enough time seeing and understanding myself. We are so impaired in our vision because we lack the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. We get things wrong. We misinterpret ourselves, much less how much more other people that we misunderstand. God wants you and I to have a full, complete experience in God, to live an experience with God every day, to walk with Him in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. That's why He called it being baptized, rather than a sponge bath. He didn't say you shall take a sponge bath with the Holy Ghost, just a little under the arms and a dab here and there. But he said you immersed, baptized, fully immersed in the Holy Ghost. You know, Christians thinking that having church is singing about experiences that they're not having themselves is evidence it's time for a second touch. Think about it. We sing powerful songs with powerful words that many of us have never experienced. Now, does that seem like that's God's will to you? Was that God's plan for the church? We shouldn't be singing about stuff we've never done or aren't doing, have no plan to do, but somebody else 2,000 years ago did it we should be singing about what we did this week. Somebody say amen. amen. When we talk about opening the eyes of the blind, when we talk about walking and breaking out of our fear, we ought to be talking about what we did this week, what we're going to do in the week to come. We should be singing when we're worshiping about the experience we're having, not about the experiences we're not having. Praise the Lord. Kathy, does that sound right to you, lady? Amen, amen, hallelujah. Jesus sent the Holy Spirit so that you can make history, not worship history. He wants you to make history. He doesn't want you singing about somebody else's history. The book of Acts only goes to chapter 27, but there is a 28th chapter in the book of Acts It's your life. It's your experience. It's what you're doing. You're reading about Peter. You're reading about Paul. You're reading about the apostles, uh, Aquila and Priscilla and Apollos and all of those believers in the testimonies of the book of Acts. Not so that you could sing about them. Not so that you could talk about what they did or even as a reference of what's possible in God, but because that's the pattern for you. You ought to be reading about Peter and developing hunger and thirst inside yourself. When's the last time you read about the Apostle Paul and said, I'm going to do that? As a young man, having come out of barren, spiritually barren atheism, coming to Jesus, having never opened a Bible, everything was new to me when I first got saved, totally new. I had absolutely no church experience no Bible training. So when I got saved and filled with the Holy Ghost, I'm reading the Bible for the first time in my life. And those stories are leaping off the page because I'm reading about what I intend to do. When I read that, it was like, I'm going to do that. I understood because the people that I have fellowshiped with, when they handed me the Bible, they said, here's your manual. Here's your manual. Read it because this is what... You're supposed to do. This is what you're supposed to be. We've turned church into a history lesson. We're supposed to be history makers. Not, not people that sing about history. We're not museum curators. We're trailblazers. Glory to God. Hallelujah. I'd like to just camp out on that a minute, but I've got to make that point. We need the second touch the second touch is when you go from just seeing everything obscurely to being, hallelujah, like Jesus, seeing with his clarity, hallelujah, amen. All right, the second example that I want to give you about the fact that God uses this, this two-phase, phase one, phase two, step one, step two, uh, method in, in, uh, in our lives is, is taken from the story of the, the Hebrew slaves being delivered out of Egypt. And Moses leads them out of Egypt, and they come up to the Red Sea. And you know the story that, the, that uh, they're backed up against the Red Sea, and the, the Egyptians are about to destroy them, and God parts the Red Sea, and he delivers them. So they're delivered, and they, they cross over into not the promised land. They're supposed to be going to the promised land. Moses says, I'm leading you, God has a land where you and he are going, he's going to be your God, you're going to be his people. So they get on the other side of the river. Oh, this, this really is, it's looking kind of dry. It's, you know, there's not much here. This doesn't look, this looks worse than where we came from. They called it the wilderness. So when they got on the other side of the river Jordan, they were in a place called the wilderness. And the sea closed up, and the chariots of Pharaoh were all drowned in the sea. So guess what? They were delivered from their captors. They were technically no longer slaves. The slavery period was over with. Listen to me. When God brought them out, the slavery period was over with. There's a message in there for somebody. If you dig it out, hallelujah. You're a sharp bunch. I, I'm pretty sure you'll get it. Hallelujah. But to get into the promised land, and they trek, ac- I mean, the wilderness. They trek across the wilderness. They come to the border up on the north uh, eastern side of the wilderness, where the promised land's on the other side of a river called the Jordan River. And so they send these spies across the river to go in and spy out the promised land. They're so excited! Oh, we're going to go into the, our own country. God's going to give us our own land. The ten s- spies come back. Two of them are excited. Look at the size of the grapes. This is unbelievable. This is a land flowing with milk and honey. The other eight say, "Yeah, there's also giants in the land. There's big walled cities. We don't have any walls. They've got men on those walls and everything." We're, we're, this is the promised land. God said, "This is your land," but there's people living in it. There's people living in your land. Listen to me. God gave you the promised land. He said, it's yours. Take it and inhabit it. I am with you, but you're going to have to fight for every square inch. That doesn't mean it's not yours. It doesn't mean you're not going to possess it. God gives us things that we have to fight for. It's called the fight of faith. Lay hold. Fight the fight of faith. Lay hold of eternal life to which you were called. But the ten, the eight of those ten that came back and said there's giants in the land, they won out. And there was probably over a million, one to two million Jews that, that uh, Moses was leading, and they all got scared, and they all got discouraged, and they said, we can't, we can't go into this land. This is, this is a ruse. This is a, this is a hoax. This, God's playing a trick on us. And they wanted to go back to Egypt. They said, we're familiar with Egypt. But the faith to enter the promised land scared them because they were unsure. They were more comfortable with the lash and the bondage of slavery because they were used to it. They were familiar. So they chose familiarity over faith. And there they were, stuck in a place called the wilderness, It was a 40-day trip from the Red Sea to the Jordan River. God said, I'm sorry, you cannot enter the promised land because you're all going to get yourselves killed. You have no faith, you have no confidence, there's no boldness. Why? Because God had brought them out of Egypt, but they still had Egypt in their heart. They had slave mentality. They didn't see themselves as warriors. They saw themselves as victims That victim mentality. Somebody say amen if you know what I'm talking about. Oh, me. And what's wrong with me? And I'm broke down and, and I can't do this. I don't have any training. I've been a slave all my life. But see, when God says that's your promised land, I am with you. You can take it. Honey, I don't care if you've milked cows all your life. There's a walled city full of giants. That's your city. You can take it. If God says to do it. And God had said to do it. So there was this two phase. God delivered them out, but then he had to bring them in. And it says about that in Deuteronomy chapter 6, 23. And God brought us out from there, from Egypt, so that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to our fathers. So it says God brought us out in order to bring us in. There's, again, the two-step process of God. He brought us out, say it with me, He brought us out, brought us out. to bring us, bring us in. So God's brought you out Do you intend to go in. That's what the wilderness is all about. The wilderness is all about, do you choose to enter in? If you still have Egypt in your heart, and you're just missing the familiarity, the confidence, no matter how bad your life of sin was, at least you knew it. You knew how to manage it. It was was what you could do. There's so many Christians today that are living carnally. They're holding on to the faith and the hope that God's bringing them into something, but they think carnally. They don't think according to the Word of God. They don't walk by faith. They don't think According to God's word, they don't think in faith. When they meet problems, they go running to the world's problem solvers. When they run into difficulties, they see themselves as defeated. It's slave mentality. The entire generation of slaves that came out of Egypt, guess what happened to them? They spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness because that's how long it took for the whole generation to die off. While they were in the wilderness, they had children. Their children had no slave experience. Their children never were slaves. Now, mom and dad, I guarantee you, were filling their heads with all kind of slave talk. Are you listening to me? They were telling them how horrible it was. But they were saying, you know, it was terrible, but we did have our own place. We're, We're living in tents. We're moving every two weeks out here with the lizards and the scorpions and these Amalekites attacking us. What's that all about? So guess what? They still had Egypt in their heart. They said, at least we were protected. We had a hard life. but." So in the wilderness, the children that were born to the dying former slaves, they had no attachment to Egypt. They'd never been slaves. They kept hearing Moses and Joshua and Caleb saying, oh, the promised land. It's there. Man, the grapes are huge. The grass is green. There's hills. There's valleys. There's rivers. It is awesome. And God said it's ours. So that generation that was born in the wilderness, all they knew was, let's go. Put me in, coach. Let's go. Are you listening to me? So there's your two-phase work of God. God puts you in a wilderness so you can decide to get Egypt out of your head and fill your heart with faith in God's promise and enter. You either have to decide, I am a slave in Egypt. So that, you know, people keep going back. That's why people are addicted. They keep going back to stuff because that's where their heart is. The biggest problem with the church today is that they're saved, they're singing songs, worshiping Jesus, but the heart is still in the world. They love worldly things. They solve their problems with worldly solutions. Every time the devil pokes them, they scream and whine and bellyache and cry. It never occurs to them, I'm standing on the word. Satan, you can't push me around. I'm a child of God. They don't act like they're entering the promised land. I'm not beating anybody up here, am I? <laughs> Y'all just went to sleep on me. So you understand, there were two types of people living in the wilderness. Those who's, who had Egypt in their heart, waiting to die. Those who had the promised land in their heart, waiting to enter in. Who are you? Who are you going to be? Are you going to be hanging out in church until you fall over, until you die? Or are you going to use this wilderness as a staging area to make up your mind? I'm entering in. When I leave church on Sunday morning, bless God, the devil, if he knows what's good for him, better not be in my yard. He better not be operating in my finances. I better not find that sickness strangling my children. I better not find division operating in my marriage because I'm going to deal with it like a child of God in the promised land, not like a slave who's a victim. Are you? Listening? Am I making myself clear this morning? Praise God. I'm doing better preaching than you are amen. Praise the Lord. So the wilderness was that buffer between the two phases, phase one and phase two, and it existed to wean you from your tendency to choose familiarity over faith. Stop thinking that the life of faith is for the pastor or for the the free spiritual people in the church. But that life of faith and victory and taking hold of promises is for everyone who's born again. Every child of God is called to be an overcomer. So stop passing these opportunities to have victory in your life and treating them with slave mentality, start using faith mentality and dealing, hallelujah, and start entering the promised land. Praise the Lord. So the wilderness, obviously, and we'll move on to the third example, is where God provides you with the opportunity to enter the promised land, but you have to choose it. And let me say to you, Um, the reason why I say that a lot of Christians are living in the wilderness and not in the promised land, because the, the real big difference between the wilderness and the promised land, both places are free from the slavery of Egypt. You're saved, you're delivered, the Red Sea was parted, you are in the wilderness, you're born again, you're a child of God. But the wilderness is where You only use God as your provider. The promised land is where you live with him. Jesus said, live with me, and I live with you. Take me home. Let me run your house with you. Are you listening? Praise the Lord. So why are you putting up with that marriage that's falling apart? Why are you putting up with those kids that are rebelling against you? Why are you putting up with all the trash talking the devil does, speaking to you, threatening you, and uh, messing with your life. Why are you putting up with that? See, if you're living in the promised land, you're living with God. Satan can't deal with God, as long as you put your foot down. So you get what I'm saying, praise the Lord. The promised land is where you and God live together. The wilderness is where most Christians are. God's just their provider. Lord, meet my needs. Lord, answer my prayers. Lord, this, But they don't live with him. They live very much in the world. Number three. Uh, here's my third and final example of, uh, of the second touch. And I call it the two-step process of calling and choosing. Many are called, but few are chosen. In Psalm is the story... Of Joseph, and we shared about Joseph a little bit last week. I want to take an excerpt of the scripture in Psalm 105 that talked about Joseph, but just to refresh your memory, but it should be fresh in your mind from last week. Joseph was uh, um, his father's favored son. Jacob loved Joseph more than his more than his other eleven brothers, and he gave him that coat and everything. And Joseph thought who he was. And uh, he had that dream. God gave him the dream a couple times about how God was going to elevate him and make him great. And he tells his brothers they get mad at him and they sell him to a slave trading caravan that take him down into Egypt, a foreign land. Doesn't know the language, doesn't know anybody. There's no Hebrews down there. And they sell him as a slave. He's in Potiphar's house. Then his wife lies about him. He gets thrown into prison. And there he is rotting in in an Egyptian prison in a foreign country, Nobody around to encourage him. He is by himself. And then all in one day, God raises him out of the prison, makes him prime minister of the greatest empire on the face of the earth at the time. So here is this little excerpt from that narrative. God called for a famine on the land of Canaan. That's where Jacob, his father, and his, his sons were, back home. And then God sent someone to Egypt ahead of them. Joseph, who was sold as a slave. Now, hold on for a minute. We think when God sends us, we're going first class. If God sends, I'll know God's sending me because all the money was going to be there. I'll know God's sending me because I don't have to go greyhound. I can fly. I'll know God is sending me because there'll be people there ready to welcome me and receive me. No, no. When God sends you, You not only may go greyhound, you may be boxed up and go as baggage. That is how Joseph went. He got boxed up, made him a slave, and shipped his hind end down to Egypt where he served as a slave. Then from there, he was elevated to prison and spent years in prison. And yet the Bible says, He was a man God sent. He wasn't just sent when he became prime minister. God sent him into slavery. Let me say it again. God sent him through the experience of Potiphar's house, through the experience of slavery, to the throne of the prime minister of Egypt. God sent a man, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. They bruised his feet with fetters. They placed his neck in an iron collar. Until the time came to fulfill his dreams that God had given him, the Lord, until the time came, the Lord tested Joseph's character. I lifted that right out of the Bible. You can write it down in your notes, Psalm 105, verse 22, 16 through 22. You might not like it. I don't blame you if you don't like it. This is the God who is your God. This is the God you pray to. This is the Jesus that you follow. Jesus sent him down into Egypt. First, he gave him the dream of God elevating him, making him his favorite, his brothers bowing down and worshiping. So he has his little coat from his father that he's, he's his father's favorite. Next thing he knows, he's in rags. He's in prison. No way out. It's just the end of the world for him. And the Bible says this one phrase explains all those years of misery. Until the time to fulfill his dreams, the Lord tested Joseph's character. Underline it. If you got a yellow highlighter, I mean yellow that thing out in your Bible. God tested his character. You're not going anywhere in God if your character is shot. If you're no different than the world, if you're just like everybody else when things don't go right, you are not going to be elevated out of that prison. There are more Christians today praying God deliver them, praying God make their situation, make my bed soft, help me change all this stuff, but they won't allow God to deal with their character. Now, uh, pardon me if your toes are getting stomped on, I'm trying to help you. God is trying to help you because he's wanting to bring you to the second touch. There is a buffer between the first touch and the second touch for a reason. Your character is being tested. Now, when I started this thing, it was over 50 years ago, started walking with the Lord. So I've had quite a bit of experience, a lot of experiences. And I know what it feels like to walk with God through decades of experience. And I know you think different when you're starting out than when you are older and you got a lot of mileage in the rearview mirror. But let me tell you something. I know from experience with myself, as well as other people, that it is very typical, very typical, for Christians who love God, read their Bible, they're in church all the time, to go 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years and more, they don't change. They have the same character defects they had 50 years ago. This is not the church that's going to turn the world upside down. We talk about revival. We talk about God's going to bring revival. What's he going to use? You've got dug in saints who won't leave the wilderness. You've got Joseph down in that prison. And until Joseph allowed God to wring out of him all of that petty, pompous, proud attitude that he had, and he had plenty of it before he became a slave. There's no way God was going to send him to the throne of the prime minister of Egypt with all that pride, pomp, and arrogance. He wasn't going there until he was broken and freed of that stuff. And he had proved that Jesus is his Lord and Savior. You see, this is why Jesus said, if you don't take up your cross daily, And walk with me and follow me if every time you get challenged with things in your life that are nothing more than petty little defiant acts of rebellion on the part of our flesh and you just keep letting them go again and again and again and you think, well, you know, I'll just read my Bible some, pray, I'll feel a whole lot better. God gave us the gift of repentance so we could leave the wilderness God gave us the gift of repentance so we could enter the promised land. God gave us the gift of repentance so we could go from the prison of Egypt to the seat of the prime minister of the empire. God's got something better for you, but your character is being tested. And until you pass that test, you're not going to elevate And I don't care how much you go to these conferences where you've got all these people strutting around up on stage and talking about your day, this is your time to elevate. I speak elevation over you. You can speak elevation till the cows come home. All you want to, but you're speaking to a bunch of people who are dug in, in the flesh, compromised, lazy Christians. And going to a conference where they proclaim elevation over you is not going to change anything in your life. Now I've I've left preaching and gone to meddling. (laughs) But somebody needs to meddle with Christians today. Hallelujah. The frightening, inescapable fact is that God sent Joseph through the abuse, through the betrayal, through the depression of slavery and Pharaoh's prison on his way to promoting him to Pharaoh's court. Why? Why in Jesus' name? Would God do that to a son that he loved, that he favored, that he intended to promote as the prime minister of a foreign empire? Why would God do that? Why wouldn't God just just use him, just promote him? Remember, people, you know, compromisers, listen to me now. So I'm going to get rough on you. Compromisers love to talk about Balaam's donkey. God used a donkey. So what are you saying about yourself? That is a big, pathetic excuse. God spoke through a donkey. That is your highest ambition as a Christian? God used a jackass so he can use me? No wonder we don't have any power in the church. No wonder there's there's no supernatural manifestation of God. There's no holiness. We're just a bunch of donkeys. God grabbed the donkey and made it talk. That's no testimony about the donkey. God saved you because he loves you and wants you to be a testimony. You're to be like Jesus, not a donkey. God can use a jackass. You, however, are called to be a child of God. And he has sent the Holy Ghost to give you the power to be that child of God. Somebody say amen. Amen. So why why would God do that to somebody who had great love and compassion and intended to raise him up to be prime minister? I'll tell you why. Because if you're only willing to be faithful to God under favorable circumstances, you're never going to remain faithful to him when the blessing and the promotion comes with its greater temptations. Listen, You think being where you're at, being down in the belly of the prison has got its temptations, try becoming the prime minister of a foreign empire. Now you're talking about some temptations. When you blow it in Potiphar's house or when you blow it in the prison, you know, the consequences are like little ripples. When you've got elevation, when you've got great authority and you blow it, people get hurt. Empires fall. God's trying to give us, listen people, God's trying to give us position. He's trying to take you and turn you into Peter or Paul. That's what he's trying to do. He's trying to do that with us. Hallelujah. Hebrews chapter 12. You knew I was going to get into this. Here we go. Verse 5 through 11. My child, don't make light of the Lord's discipline. Don't give up when he corrects you. For the Lord disciplines those that He loves. He punishes each one that He accepts as His child. If God doesn't discipline you as He does all His children, it means that you are illegitimate and not really His children at all. No discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. It's painful. But afterwards, there will be a peaceful fruit of righteousness For those that are trained in this way, (laughs) God is saying, love and embrace discipline. It's not joyous, but it's going to get you where you need to go. You can't get out of the wilderness into the promised land without a fight. It's a fight of faith, and it's going to take discipline. Paul talked about being a soldier enlisted. In the army of God. Everybody wants to, you know, everybody wants I want to be in the, I want to be in God's army. But it takes training. It takes sacrifice. It takes allowing yourself to be broken down and remade into the man or woman of God that it takes to win those fights of faith. Hallelujah. Somebody say amen. amen. Glory to God. So, We don't like discipline. And I'll tell you why we don't like discipline. Because we live in a culture today that has polluted and destroyed the minds of our young people. And it's creeping in across all levels of our culture today that if it's God, it's comfortable. God would never make you uncomfortable. God would never treat you ugly. If it's uncomfortable, if it's unkind, if it's harsh, God can't possibly be involved with it. No chastening seems joyous at the moment. The truth can be ugly. The truth can be ugly. I know when God rubs my nose in the truth, it isn't pretty. It's ugly for a reason. If it were pretty, I wouldn't have to have my nose rubbed in it. (laughs) I know I'm going to regret saying this because... You know exactly why. Because, you know, you say this stuff and it's all, you know, every finger got three point back at you. That's the way that goes. But in our weak, excessive, affirmation-addicted culture, we are producing people that are paralyzed in the wilderness, incapable of entering the fight of faith necessary to possess the promised land. Because they can't take correction. Pastors have given up. They don't reprove their con... They don't... Correct people. But the Bible says if you love your children, you'll correct them. That's why our children are kicking the doors of Walmarts in and just taking what they want and walking out because mom and dad didn't love them. Somebody didn't love them enough to discipline them. Somebody didn't love them enough to open their eyes and let them know what life is really all about. You see, in our culture today, everybody thinks that it's all about me and what I can get for myself. Jesus said, no, if you're going to follow me, you'll be taking up your cross. You'll be dying daily. You forget about you because the real you is the one that is in me. Hallelujah. Paul said, the life I now live, I live through the faith of the Son of God who loved and gave. But, but, uh, I, I don't want to lose my identity. Your identity is what you've been whining about all your life. All those problems you whine about, you know why you got them? Those fires that you've been going through, you lit every one of them. You set the fires that burn your life up. You are the problem that you're having. Not the devil, not the people that aren't treating you right, you. And so you can't have it both ways. Either you want to get, you want to escape self to become the new man the new woman that christ has called you to be or you want to stay in the wilderness make your choice but you're not going to get there without going through the first touch and the second touch you want the second touch there's a wilderness for a reason many are called few are chosen let me answer the question why would god call many and then choose few is god arbitrary is it capricious does God just want the ones that look good to him? Guess who guess who decides who the few that are chosen are? Not God. The few that get chosen. The few that got chosen decided they would get chosen because they chose what God called them to do. You can't not obey what God calls you to do. You know, the Bible says, he that knows to do good and doesn't do it, to him it is what? Someone said evil. Wow, yeah. Bible says sin, I like evil, that works. When we know what the Word says and we refuse to do it, to us it is sin. That's why you and I ought to be on our face every day repenting. Father, forgive me. I like the way the Catholics work it out. Sins of omission, sins of commission. I've got sins that I've committed, then I've got... Sins that I've just overlooked, I haven't done. Somebody did some thinking when they worked that out. Hallelujah. So before you go criticizing Catholics, you really should take a look at some of the theology because there's a lot of really some, some good, clear thinking that went behind a lot of that. So let me read this last verse to you. Romans 8, 5 through 8. Those who live according to the flesh have their outlook shaped by the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, they have their outlook shaped by the things of the Spirit. This is simple math. One plus one is two. For the outlook of the flesh is death, but the outlook of the Spirit is life and peace. Because the outlook of the flesh is hostile to God, for it is not Subject to the law of God, neither is able to be so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. This is why you and I need to be praying, God, please deliver me from me. I want to enter the promised land. I want the second touch. I want to really be baptized in the Holy Spirit. I want that fresh immersion. In the Holy Ghost. Hallelujah. Endure hardness. Rejection. Endure misunderstanding. Endure abuse if you're abused. Do it without throwing in the towel of faith. You're on your way to the promised land. Lose everything if necessary. But take up your cross and follow Jesus. If it costs you everything, then goody. Jesus said, great will be your reward, not only in heaven, but in the, the minute you lay self at the foot of the cross and decide to make Jesus Lord, things are going to get better. Things are going to begin to improve. Hallelujah. Here's a, here's a parting thought for you. You know how Jesus said, all you that labor and are heavy laden, weary, come to me, I love you, I love everybody. Just the commercials on TV about Jesus and the gospel, Jesus gets you, Jesus loves you, Jesus is all about you and everything. So people just soak that up, man. They're like, oh, thank God somebody gets me. So everyone has burdens. We all have a yoke, right? Your burden, your yoke that you carry. (laughs) You know what? You know what Jesus' answer was to your heavy burden, your yoke? Here's another yoke for you. Take mine. You ever thought about it? Jesus didn't say, let me help you out of that yoke. Jesus didn't say, oh, let me take those burdens off of you. I know preachers get up and say that all the time. The Lord wants to take those burdens off of you, but they can't show me a place where that's what Jesus said. Jesus said, no, you need another yoke. Another yoke, yes, you need another burden. My yoke is easy, my burden. You get into the yoke with me, that other stuff won't matter. Right. Amen. Those other burdens, they won't matter. I know how to work them out, but I can't do it if you don't obey me and get into the yoke with me. Hallelujah. God is looking for people that he can promote to important positions of influence people who don't need to be constantly coddled, always understood by everybody, people whose great desire isn't for God to get them, but for God to correct them. My prayer is that you'll leave this church today, you'll leave this altar prayer, and you'll say, Lord, more than anything, my prayer is, correct me. Because I know that after that, on the other side of that, is my peace, my freedom, my deliverance. Hallelujah. Somebody say amen. Close your Bible, stand with me this morning.